FMX Network Production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. You know a new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's industry seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires and brought to you by Blendsall, Plum Creek Funding, Works Connection, Premier Vapor Blasting of Georgia, 612 Suspension, and Fly Racing. that time again it's sunday i'm actually in las vegas looking out my beautiful hotel window i'm staying at the wind which is amazing for those of you who haven't ever been here and uh yeah there's not a lot of demand to be in vegas right now with this whole covid19 situation so uh pretty affordable and uh, i've been staying here for a long time so it's nice to be back definitely adds some normalcy back into the world uh it's a little weird here though people wearing masks everywhere actually been working out in the the gym downstairs with a mask on doing cardio with a mask on that's not very awesome I was a little frustrated at that because I was in California this whole past week and I did not have to do that so I get it if, if that's what it takes to be able to enjoy places like the win and, and come to Vegas and do things if we're gonna have to make some compromise yeah so be it I don't really mind a little inconvenience. I will take overall normalcy and, and being able to live my life if this is what it's going to take. So obviously it's a hot button topic. A lot of people pissed off about having to wear masks. And again, I don't love it by any means, but whatever the greater good is, whatever it takes to get life back to normal and get the economy going and stock markets back on track and all these things, that's way, way, way more important to me. So I'm, I'm up for whatever it takes for those things to happen. I want to thank all the sponsors of this podcast, Pirelli Tires, Blends All Oils, Works Connection, Premier Vapor Blasting, Plum Creek Funding, Fly Racing, and 612 Suspension. Thank you to all those guys for being a part of this. And this is the first off weekend, I guess, after many, many off weekends during the uh, coronavirus break. And if you've been following along the outdoor series, we have two confirmed rounds, but I would, I'll be honest and say, I don't know how sure those are. You know, I, I don't think we've taken any official steps back, but if you just are watching the news at all, uh, it's a little bit scary, right? It can't be as sure of a thing as it was a couple weeks ago, just because of this coronavirus resurgence and the numbers are really high and the media is not helping this. And as a member of the media somewhat, I don't really consider myself a journalist, but I guess I fall into the media in my, uh, you know, these fun things that we do with podcasts and writing and stuff. It's a little disheartening to see the fear mongering going on. And I know that's a serious, it's a serious topic, right? People are dying and it, it is, something that needs to be taken very seriously. But when the media jumps on board and, and really tries to incite fear for ratings, 
because they know people are, are really paying attention and there's people are scared. I hate that. I, I really don't like when people take advantage of situations for their own benefit. So I've been really trying to measure my approach and my response to it. I am being careful as I, I open with, I am wearing a mask and I, I've been trying to do the right thing. And I, I wash my hands constantly and I use hand sanitizer constantly because I don't want to get sick and I'm more at risk than probably many of you. I'm, I'm all over the place right now. I've been in California and driving and fl- I fly back home after the Pulp MX show. So I'll fly, be on another airplane on Tuesday. So for me, I'm probably putting myself in harm's way many, much more than many of you. So yes, I am taking it seriously. And yes, I, I am concerned. But at the same time, life has to go on. And without a vaccine or without any real, you know, a cure or therapies, I don't really know what the alternative is because we can't just shut down for the next year. And we've talked about this at length, but I've kind of weighed it out myself. And if I want to go back to somewhat of a normal life for myself, which is a lot of travel and going to the races and uh, seeing all of our wonderful, wonderful Western Power Sports dealers out there, I'm going to have to take some sort of risk. And if I contract COVID-19, I don't think that's something I will look forward to, but I, I do have a very close friend who had it and he had a few rough days, wasn't feeling very awesome, but he's fine now. He, he got through it and I would hope I would go through the same process, but that's a, it's a different conversation for a different day, but I don't really see how America is going to be able to avoid this over the next year unless we're just willing to forego the entire economy and, and shut down. So I've already kind of made my peace with it and I'm going to be as careful as possible. Yet I'm also going to try to do the things that I need to do to make sure uh, the business enterprises that I have and the ones I'm involved with, I can do the best of my ability. So let's get into a few listener Q and A's. No real race news to go over today other than, you know, we just have those two rounds and I've heard, every variation of an outdoor schedule, but it it does sound like the powers that be are going to have as many rounds as possible. I think the television networks and sponsors are asking for that in whatever capacity that can happen. They definitely want racing and the power sports industry is exploding right now. Everyone is out riding, spending time in their UTV, ATV, dirt bike, whatever, because there are no other sports happening. So that's been a great thing for the sport. And I think that the overall consensus is we want to continue that momentum and and keep the ball rolling. So we'll see how MX Sports and the promoter group all can respond to that, working within their state guidelines and the reopening process. Now, as for the listener Q&A, I appreciate everybody reaching out. And for future reference, my email is jason36 at aol.com. I also have an industry seating podcast Instagram. It's at industry seating. And I have my personal Instagram at Jason66Thomas. So you can reach out in any of those ways to submit these questions. I do appreciate it. And uh, I like to answer these questions and get feedback because, you know, I'm so close to this sport and I'm so intertwined in it from, you know, working for one of the major brands involved. I used to race, obviously, for. 16 years, way too long. Um, all the Pulp MX stuff we do, right for Racer X, and I'm at all these races. So I, I 
I don't know how much closer I can get to it. So I, I take a lot of things for granted as far as insider information and insight and some things that just aren't obvious on the surface, but they seem obvious to me. And, and I've really tried to do a better job of taking a step back and having a broader view of the sport. But these questions that you all submit help that process. They really help for me to get a better grasp on what is easily seen and known and what's not. And what do you know all of you that are at home and you're just going racing on the weekends or riding or you're just a casual fan, what are the questions that you have that I may not even think twice about because it's just so ingrained in my daily life. But it really helps me get a better perspective on things that we can do a better job of sharing. So let's get into them. It's just, uh, just wanted to share. It's been, it's been pretty awesome for me to learn a little bit about, uh, you know, listener and fan perspective versus my own. So Chris asks, has anyone ever made a comment in an autograph line or pre-race that it affected my race? Um, and, and I think he's kind of commenting on the stuff that Cooper Webb was yelling at fans, but I think he's also referencing some guys that got hurt really badly, uh, like Fonseca. Obviously, Ernesto got hurt really badly in 2006, which was terrible. And um, Trey Kennard, you know, getting hurt in, what was that, 2012 at Los Angeles uh, Dodger Stadium there. And I was at that race and racing that night. So I think he's mentioning just people saying comments about getting hurt or, you know, worry about that stuff. But really for, for most of us, and I say us as, as racers, when you go to the line and when you put your goggles on and the 30 second cards up, all that stuff has to go away and you cannot race to the best of your ability. If you're, if you're thinking about getting hurt in the middle of the race. Now, before the race, after the race, at home, um, sitting and staging, yes, I, I definitely was concerned with getting hurt, and I think everybody would tell you the same, and if they're not, they're probably lying, because it's always in the back of your mind. This is a, you know, at the, at the level that these guys are racing at, and, and I was racing at, it is dangerous, and, and guys are taking big chances. There are big rewards on the other side of those chances, but yes, we are in control for the most part. But when you put, you know, 21 other people on the track and you're barreling into the first turn and jumping over each other, the risk factor goes way, way up. And I really didn't feel that I was taking huge risks when I was riding by myself, like practicing. Yeah, it's, I mean, things can happen. Your bike can break. And, and obviously what happened to Ernesto is a perfect example of that. But the racing was much more dangerous and most of my injuries came from racing and just things happening, you know, pileups and, and people making a decision that you didn't anticipate. That's really where ma the majority of injuries happen. So in short, yes, I was stressing about it, but it wasn't ever really a comment that a, a fan made or anything like that. I was already well aware of the risk and, you know, you get hurt a few times and you know what's possible and you have friends that pass away or are paralyzed or have really catastrophic injuries, it's not a mystery to know what the risk is. And being able to mitigate that risk and compartmentalize it, which is, I think is a, a very important quality for athletes to have is you need to be able to compartmentalize things, whether it's insecurity about your ability or whether it's worry about injury or 
stuff that's going on in your personal life that that's not allowing you to focus on the job at hand. That's a really big and important quality to have in it. And I think it's a skill you can learn, uh, over time. And, and I know a lot of guys have sports psychologists and they work on this stuff a lot, but I, I do think it's something you can get better at. And Jeff Emig used to talk about this quite a bit. He got it from a movie and I'm trying to remember what the movie was called. It was a baseball movie and it was basically a process where you would engage the mechanism is what the phrase was. And in that moment you made a, uh, decision to block out everything else. And the only thing that mattered was the job at hand in that race right then. And everything else went to the wayside, your worries about family or friends or injury or finances or whatever else was going on in your life for the next, you know, 20 laps or 35 minutes or whatever the case may be. None of that stuff existed anymore. And then once the race was over, yeah, you go back to your normal life and your normal worries can, can come back into your psyche. But there is skill to that. And I think the best athletes in the world in any sport, I don't care what you're doing, if you're Tom Brady or if you're Eli Tomac or whatever, I think they have found a way to block out everything else. And the only thing going through their mind is right then. And they are truly in the moment. And I think that's, that's important. You can work on and get better at it. And I think over the years, you've seen guys that have been very, very good at it and guys that maybe are not as good at it. And I'm not going to put people on front street, but I could name some people that I think have a very difficult time with that. And if you want to try to narrow it down, just think of the guys that race that are the most talented. When you watch them ride, you're like, I don't know how this guy's not winning every race in front of him. But then in the race, they fall apart. They have, you know, seem like unseemly crashes. They just do dumb stuff or have issues that they should never have, right? You can watch them in practice do... 50 laps in a row and they don't make one mistake and they're on the cutting edge of a fast lap time. And then they get in the race and the pressure's on and they can't get out of their own way or they can't block out all the noise and just do what they know how to already do. They just can't mentally get out of their own way. So, uh, yeah, I think it's an under, um, analyzed aspect of the sport and you could go back through history and see guys, that maybe underperformed for their talent level and weren't able to ever get that championship. And that's probably a big part of it was mentally they were just in their own head. Chad asks, can you explain how to read the AMA track map and figure out where each timing segment begins and ends? So two things here, reading the track map is pretty easy. Like you can obviously go on, you know, racer X online or the Feld websites and see the Yamaha sponsored track maps that are put out. Now I do that. I, when I write my staging, uh, staging area columns that come out before each round, I read those and, and the way to interpret those is over years of experience. I know kind of what Dirtworks is trying to accomplish with each section. They're, they're building rhythm sections in their head. They don't always get executed exactly the way they draw them up, but they do have a plan. There's a, and there's a method to their madness as far as putting the track together and just over you know, 20 years of, of reading these Dirtworks track maps, you can kind of see what they're angling towards. And then other times they kind of throw a section together and just let the rider sort it out. They'll, they'll piece together a, a bunch of obstacles that doesn't really look like it has a hard plan, but there are several options and several ways to get through there. So I've seen that happen as well. Now, as for the timing segments, 
those are not on the publicly shown track maps. The maps that are given out to the teams at the races have those segments on them. And I don't know why that's not publicly shown or, or made, made available, but I do know like the teams, when they look at their track maps, they have those on there and they're segmented to where each timing loop is located. But again, I don't know why or how to get those uh, made publicly available. So good question. I should probably ask that. Um, I don't know how much, you know, insider demand there is for those out there for the average fan or the casual fan, but be something just to add more insight and more perspective to the sport. And I don't really see any downside or any reason that those would need to be held back, but good question, Chad. Um, and again, I've only seen them inside the, the team trucks when they're studying their tape and their, you know, lit pro or whatever. I've, uh, I've seen those maps pretty common, commonly held anyway. Marcos, and I appreciate Marcus has asked a few questions. Uh, this particular one is about uh, fly racing, which I, I'm already on board with that, about letting them alter their gear. And has, have we ever entertained the idea of running a signature line in gear or casual? And he mentions when Adam Entignap used to be sponsored by fly racing for years and years, and he obviously is on a team now where he doesn't have any say in that. But he painted some of his sector boots years ago. They were custom, and we had fun with it on the show, and I was giving him a hard time. But he's just asking if, if there are more marketing opportunities for riders to do custom stuff and signature stuff. And a lot of different angles to this. It's challenging for a brand to do signature stuff because of volume and MOQs, which are minimum order quantities. The concerns there make it difficult. And when you do smaller batches of stuff, your price goes up significantly. And it's a lot of work for the design team, the factories, all the processing, all the people in, in at Western Power Sports that have to touch this. And when I say touch it, I mean warehousing and purchasing and uh, the processing side and accounting and, and you're involving all those people and that there's an associated cost with that. And it's really hard to quantify that cost. But, you know, when myself and our team are weighing the pros and cons of doing signature stuff or LE stuff or special edition stuff or whatever, we have to factor all those things in. And it's kind of pie in the sky stuff at times, but other times when you have a hard fixed cost, from the factory to build some of this stuff, you can start to narrow that down. And like when we do limited edition gear, right there, there are things called rollers and that's how you build panels. And that's how the graphic is applied to the gear. Well, each roller costs money and that has to be produced. And you'll see like if it was a line of white gear, the same graphic has the same roller. So that's, you apply that roller cost across several colorways and you can start to minimize that cost or at least reduce it across more volume and more colorways, right? The more volume they have per piece, that roller cost is going to come down. So if you're doing just a special edition or just one LE, especially the graphic, your roller cost goes up and your per piece cost for fly racing goes way up. And that's why you see many limited edition items cost significantly more. And we've really tried to minimize that. Most of our LE stuff is the same cost. And yeah, it's a challenge. Uh, we make less money on it, but we don't really want to pass costs off to the consumer most of the time. 
there have been there have been situations where we've had to. It just did not make sense, and we were going to almost almost lose money. And if you look at the marketing costs, we definitely would lose money. So there are a lot of concerns and a lot of different uh, ways to look at it, and a lot of factors you have to apply to it when we look at projects. And let's take the camo military LE gear, and I think it was officially called camo LE for us. But it was released to San Diego, and many of you will remember it. It was had a military green jersey and camo pants, and it was a project I was super excited about, and I, I personally pushed very hard to get done. But there were some significant – there were a few significant challenges, and cost was a very big part of that. And when we started working with our factory, the numbers they were giving back to us for our per-piece cost were crazy high way, way, way higher than what would normally be acceptable. So there were several rounds of negotiations there and we had to look at our quantities that we brought in and try to find a way to get this done because at face value, it probably would have been just, no, we just can't pull this off. So there were a lot of, a lot of different things that had to happen in that process. And luckily we were able to find a way to do it, but it was not a profitable enterprise for us it was okay. Like I'm happy we did it. And it's, it's, you kind of look at it as brand building in some aspects, right? We're, we're trying to get more, more people engaged with the brand and, you know, draw eyeballs to the brand and have something to market on the, this great supercross platform that we have. But as fear as a, as a pure profit and loss project, it wasn't, wasn't all that great. So there's always that. And, and you, some things you can just write off and say, you know, this wasn't ever going to be the most profitable project we could ever come across. But at the same time, so many people are excited about it. It really did do a good job of getting people to pay attention. And I thought it looked awesome, regardless of the financial side of it. Um, to answer another side of your question, Marcos, doing signature stuff like that kind of falls into the same thing as where it gets really expensive on our end to do. And there's, it it just takes away from the time and effort that our design team has and as well as purchasing and warehousing and everything. You you can only do so many items like that, that aren't really going to make you money in the end before one of my bosses starts yelling about, you know, you're, we have to do things that are profitable, right? We have to do things that we can keep, our margin up on and signature items like that generally don't fall into that category. They're fun and they're almost more marketing than they are really a sales avenue. Uh, in a perfect example, we used to do uh, signature F2 helmets. So Trey Kennard had one, Andrew Short had one, Weston Pike had one, and they just turned into more trouble than they were worth in the end. And that that's me being as transparent as possible. Our sales were always a little bit lower on those than, than the normal line. And I don't know why, I don't know if it was, you know, some people just don't want to have a, a signature helmet. Like if you're a racer, you don't necessarily want a signature helmet of Weston Pike or Andrew Shorter, whoever. I would bet a lot of people didn't even know that they were a signature helmet. Uh, our costs were definitely higher because they were a one-off graphic you know, compared to doing one graphic in five or six colors, we were doing one graphic in one color a lot of times. And so, yeah, our, our end costs were higher, which brought our margin down. So it doesn't look all that enticing on paper to do those. 
So we stopped doing those a few years back. Uh, we did, you know, one of the upsides is we were able to pay the riders more because they got royalties on those items. So I'm sure they weren't thrilled about that going away. And being as honest as possible, that wasn't my decision. That was above me, the decision to stop doing those. We could start back at any time. If, if my boss, who's the owner of our company, told us we could start doing signature helmets again, like in a formula, I'm all for it. I, I don't really have a problem with doing them. It's more work, but that's okay. I thought it was a, a cool aspect and maybe we will go down that path again one day, but as of right now, we're not. So there's not a great answer to your question, Marcos. It's just one of those things where I think for fly racing, our brand is so broad and we have so many projects in process right now. And, and I would invite any of you to go grab a fly racing catalog from your local dealer and see what I'm talking about. Our skew count is unbelievable. We have so many more items available than I'm just going to say it, any other brand out there from hard parts to, uh, all of our moto stuff to helmets and goggles and boots and just everything you can possibly think of easy ups and, you know, levers, ramps, stands, gas cans. We have a lot of stuff. We are absolutely the, the broadest and we have the widest range in all of moto. So I think sometimes wanting to do projects like that just don't get done because we don't have the manpower or it just gets looked at and like, we don't, we don't have enough resource or time and time is probably the most important of those to get all these things done because we do want to offer items that are used every single day, like ramps and stands and levers and clutch perches and all the things that many people don't even know we have, but your, your everyday casual rider, they order those things all the time from local dealers and replace their, their items on their bike, or they use a stand when they buy a new bike or whatever. So it just comes down to time in the end more than anything else. Good question though. I appreciate all the other questions too, Marcus. So John McLaren asks, he is kind of asking about outdoors in a, in a format question here, a long winded question, but he went to an outdoor in 2004 at Bud's Creek. And on Saturdays, you know, I was racing obviously back then and Saturdays were seated practice for the top 20 in points in each class. And there was no incentive to do anything crazy. We were, it was just, just practice. It didn't count for anything. Your lap times didn't matter. I mean, it was kind of a, a bragging rights type thing, right? You wanted to go out and set the fastest lap time you could, but more than anything else, we were trying to get our bikes dialed in. We were trying to wear in the track and just kind of loosen up for Sunday's race without exerting yourself too much. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty fun. Um, it added an extra day to the event. So that wasn't always ideal. And if you had a family at home, which I did not, if you had a family at home, that probably wasn't great either. Cause it was just another day on the road. So his main question is, do I think the one day format is better than the two day format? Because he was really underwhelmed with the riding on Saturday, because just like I said, guys were cruising on Saturday. Nobody was really pushing the envelope. You weren't going to see huge battles or, or guys taking huge chances on Saturday because there was nothing to gain. You know, it was really more about just getting ready for the race on Sunday. Now compare that to MXGP where they have their practices, but they also have a qualifying race on Saturday. So that qualifying race sets you up for gate pick. And it's also important, right? You always want to perform well 
when the gate drops and whether you're competing for a contract for the following year or just trying to win favor within your team, those qualifying races matter and they don't get points. I, I know they don't pay points, but those guys are trying hard on Saturday. So it is, it is a little bit different from the MXGP series because for the elite in America, we were just out cruising and we were more worried about where we were going to dinner on Saturday night after practice. than we were actually about, you know, what our lap time was on Saturday. So for me personally, I think I'd like the two day format. You know, I enjoy being at the races. It's probably the most fun part of the week, right? Is, is being around all your friends and, and enjoying the weekend. But I will say that when I was racing and it went to a one day format, I was happy about it. I, I did enjoy having another day of rest at home and just kind of, you get in this grind of just travel, 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 and you're, you just get beat up and worn down. So adding a day at home, whether it was for me personally or all the mechanics, it was a welcome relief. A lot of guys were very, very happy about it. So it's easy for me to sit here now, not racing and say, yeah, I wish we'd go back to two days because I don't, I don't have this huge workload on the weekend and I really enjoy it now. I'm not racing. So it's just a big hangout session. But when I was racing and working, you know, like all the mechanics that are there just busting their ass all weekend, it's a lot more work. They have to basically, I don't say rebuild the bike after Saturday. If they were, if you know, if we had that Saturday practice, but there was a lot of work to be done on Saturday night to get the bike race ready again. So I'm sure they probably prefer this one day format, but for your specific question for a fan, of course, you'd probably rather have two days, right? You're doubling your weekend experience. You're getting two days of racing action. Or well, let's say racing. There are qualif- There were qualifiers on Saturday, but two days of riding and two days of being at a, at a pro national, which is probably your only chance to be around those guys all weekend. So I bet it was probably much more fun for fans, the two-day thing. Uh, but there's always two sides to every coin, and everybody's going to have a different perspective on it. I'm cool with either way. I would love, maybe we can incorporate a few rounds that are two days. That would be pretty cool. I I highly doubt that, right? I I don't foresee that. And Supercross was the same way too. We used to have a Friday practice and then Saturday race. And it just seems like being more efficient, less travel, less days on the road, less hotels for everybody seems to have won out for American racing where MXGP is, is full on with this, this two day event. And I don't see them going back the other way. They seem to be very happy with their, uh, their two day format. So good question from John. Um, I don't think we're going back to two days anytime soon. I think America has really embraced the one day deal, but I'm all for it. If we could get a little petition going, bring back a few two day events every year, I'm all for it. And if, and if you think about motocross the nations, right? 2018 red bud, we had, you know, a multi-day event. It seemed like I got there on Wednesday, which is way too early. And I was there until Monday and I had a blast. The weather sucked, but other than that, I had a great time. So yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's turn some of these events into a full on festival, just like motocross the nations was. Let's talk about Pirelli tires a little bit. Now Pirelli was the first on board, as I've mentioned many times on this podcast. And for those of you who have not tried Pirelli tires, give them a shot. I, I, really, really liked my Pirelli tires. And I I used them at the end of my career when I was, uh, we were still on Suzuki's, which is now the Rocky mountain KTM team. We were still on Suzuki's at the time. And, and 
Supercross was a learning process. They've come a long way since 2012, but outdoors, seriously, our tires were unbelievable. They were really, really good, and my results did not reflect at all how good the performance was. And even going back to Supercross over the years, I would take a Pirelli rear tire, and then I took a Dunlop front tire, and I just felt like that was the perfect combination of what was out there. And this was kind of in between. We weren't even sure what tires we were going we to be sponsored by, but that's what I believed was the best setup to go to Europe with. So I, my roots in Pirelli tires go back to 1998, I believe. I ran Pirelli's uh, that whole season, and I've kind of watched and followed their improvement along the way, and, and they dominate MXGP. So to think that they have outdoor tires figured out is, is not a big leap of faith to make. But I think Supercross, they're really continuing to improve. And, you know, they sponsor James Stewart at JGR, and they, they've really come a long way as far as development. So check out Pirelli Tires. Buenzo Oils, they took some pretty tough news this week because the 125 uh, invitational races that were going to go on at Lucas Oil Pro Motocross got canceled. It was a bummer. They had Michael Wesse locked and loaded and ready to go. I would say kick some butt is what was going to happen, but that is now done. So that's a bummer, but Blenzo oils is back and ready for business. They have really made a resurgence. David Schloss took over the reins over there and has been crazy involved. And half the time I, I go on their Instagram or go on their website and I see something new that they're involved in. And whether it's car racing or motocross or ATV racing or GNCC or whatever, they are in it to win it. And I love to see that, you know, fly racing is so involved with marketing and sponsorship and getting our customers informed on what we're doing and trying new products. And, and I really see that mirrored with Blenzol and that gets me excited and makes me want to be a part of what they're doing. So check out Blenzol oils, Blenzol.com and at Blenzol. Plum Creek funding. I talked to Zach Morris yesterday and he was do, he's doing a loan for uh, a VA loan. And if you're, if you are eligible for a VA loan, he was blown away at how low the rate was. I think he said like under two and a half percent on a 30 year mortgage for a VA loan. That's a seriously unbelievable. And even just normal, normal loans are in the low threes right now. So if you're in the market, if you want to see what the possibilities of doing a refi are, if you wanted to buy a new house, call Zach and just see what your options are. Reach out. And I have a lot of friends who've already refied over the last few months because of the opportunity. And if you follow the news, you know that they've come out and said that rates are going to stay this low for the next year or two minimum. So that presents such a great opportunity for you to get prepared to do a refi. And if it's not the perfect timing, you do have some time. But reach out to Zach and ask, ask him what the situation is and ask him what's best for your financial financial situation because this is what he does all day long and I I pepper him with questions all the time about myself and if I do this if I do that what if I wait a year from now blah 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 and he's probably sick of hearing about it but his phone number is 720-212-4685 and his Instagram is at Plum Creek Funding so reach out to Zach and ask what the best possible situation is for you now 612 suspension now, I've been friends with the Monk family for a long time. His dad used to do my suspension at the end of my amateur career and at the very beginning of my pro career. 
and Ronnie has kind of taken over the reins and he is now a race tech affiliate. So all of you who listen to the Pulp MX show and you hear all the race tech rants going on, this is the race tech family with 612 suspension. And he kind of does a little bit of everything. He does moto, he does ATV, UTV, street bikes, adventure touring. So whatever your use is, and if you are listening to this podcast, you probably do something with a motorcycle. Otherwise, maybe you're lost. But check out 612 Suspension. It's S-I-X, the number one, two, suspension.com. And the same thing for his Instagram is at S-I-X, 12, suspension. And I would not tell you unless I had full confidence in the stuff that Ronnie does. He raced forever and ever, and I raced against him growing up. And then he's gone into the segment following in his dad's footsteps to be a full-on suspension guru. So check out 612suspension.com. Now, Works Connection... Listen, if you don't know what Works Connection is, you must be new to the sport because these guys have been around forever. They're on all kinds of factory equipment. You walk through the pits and look at factory bikes, and you're going to see Works Connection equipment on them. And for a while, we've been discussing the Pro Launch Start device. This thing works, period. And I've been hammering all of you, all of you racers out there, if you're getting ready for Loretta's or whatever, even GNCCs, whatever the race is, if you don't have a a start device on your bike. And I I would recommend the pro launch start device, obviously, but if you don't have one on your bike, you're, you're basically starting in neutral. Let's, let's say that, um, you have no chance. Honestly, I've done starts against every possible scenario with a start hook, without a start hook, concrete, not concrete, dirt starts, grid starts. The pro launch start device works in all of them. And yes, you're going to want to move the height of that start device accordingly. If you're on dirt, you're going to want to pull that thing way down. You're going to want to go into that, you know, 130, 140, 150 millimeter range. If you're starting on concrete, you know, I'm going to recommend something lower, maybe 90 millimeters. So it's not going to bring that front end down so much. It's going to put more traction on the rear end, but all of those things are adjustable and you can set them up according to what you race on more often than not. Because for me growing up in Florida, I rarely used concrete starts. But if you grew up out west, if you raced in California or Nevada or whatever, they were all concrete starts. And that's just a regional thing. But the need for a starting device and a pro launch start device remains. So check out worksconnection.com, at worksconnection, and pick up your pro launch start device today. Moving on to another sponsor, Premier Vapor Blasting. The biggest thing I can tell you to do to convince you of what they're capable of is go to their Instagram. If you go to premier at premier vapor blasting, you're going to see exactly what I'm talking about because I can't draw a clear enough picture other than sending you there. And it, the photographic evidence is all you need to know. If you have an older bike, if you have a newer bike and it's just getting hammered, check out what they can do for your bike or your gear to rejuvenate it with this new vapor blasting technology that's out there. So check those guys out. You get a 25% discount if you mention the industry seating podcast. And again, I don't recommend companies or items that I don't believe in. If you go to their Instagram, I'm telling you, it's going to blow your mind just like it did for me. The first time I talked to Brandon, I was like, yeah, whatever, I'll check it out. And we'll see if we can make the, you know, if we can find a happy medium on an arrangement. And once I looked at their Instagram and saw what they were capable of and the work they were doing, I was sold. I was all in. It was just working out the details past that. Last but not least, I want to thank Fly Racing. Now, 
for those of you who are listening to this podcast, you know I work for Fly Racing, right? And there are so many items that we have that people don't even know about. And I've kind of talked about some of them earlier, you know, our hard parts division, all these things. I've gotten to go out and sell the 2021 line all this week. And it's been pretty fun, to be honest. I get to show all the media the stuff that we've been working on for a very long time. And I get to do that for Chris Kiefer and Steve Mathis tomorrow here in Vegas, which is going to be cool because it's it's kind of an unveiling, right? And, and no one is more passionate about gear than Chris Kiefer. So that's definitely fun. I look forward to his reaction to it. And I know I already know that the line is awesome for 2021. So I'm not stressing about that, but I, I like to see other people's initial reaction when you get to show them something really, really cool that they weren't expecting. So check out flyracing.com, check out formula.flyracing.com to learn and see all of the, the technical aspects of our new formula helmet. It is the forefront of helmet technology and protection. And that's purely my opinion, but I would be happy to argue that with anyone and have done it many, many times in the past and will continue to do so. All right. So back to, we have two more questions on this week's episode. Question comes from Matthew Pickle. He asks, do I think that Eli Tomac could win an MXGP championship against Jeffrey Hurlings? It's a good question. It's one that I've debated many, many times with guys like Steve Mathis and guys like Paul Parabinos and some of the MXGP contingent, Paul Malin. Uh, yeah, it's obviously a big sticking point, especially as Motocross of Nation looms every year. Who's the best guy? Do I think he could win an MXGP championship? Maybe. Maybe. Probably not, though. If Hurlings is healthy and at his best and Tomac's healthy and had at his best, an MXGP calendar spanning the globe, I think Hurlings is better. And that pains me because I'm very patriotic and I'm very America first in my views and just my overall sentiment. But I think... The difference in tracks and the difference in culture and the travel and the two-day schedule and a global calendar and all these things really favor Jeffrey Hurlings because that's all he's ever done. It's all he's ever known. He's so used to that dynamic. He's so used to the tracks, different terrains, different types of dirt, different food, different sleep schedule and uh, time zones. That's a, a skill that's acquired over years and years and hurlings is there he is to me the best overall outdoor motocross rider on earth and eli tomac is great don't get me wrong i think he's the best american eli tomac is he's the best american motocross rider and, and i think on any given day eli tomac could beat jeffrey hurlings but over you know what's the series is 20 rounds in its purest form they want it to be 20 rounds it won't be this year I think when you go to all these places like China and Argentina, and then you have all the intra-European rounds where Hurlings has ridden those tracks a million times, you go to Turkey, and you go all these places where Eli Tomac's going to be shell-shocked at the culture and all the, the weird surroundings and, and just the dynamic you have to deal with. Hurlings is just going to be another day, and he knows how to deal with it, and he knows what to expect. I think that's a really big advantage that's that would be too difficult to overcome. And even, you know, Ryan Villapoto went over in 2015, but he was not prepared 
Um, you know, I know Ryan really well, and I know the kind of physical shape he was in in the 2013 Outdoor Championship where he just crushed everyone. Looking at him just physically, he was about 15 pounds heavier in 2015 than he was in 2013. And listen, it was a very large financial windfall that he got to go to Europe in 2015. I don't think he really wanted to do it. I think he was okay with it. I think he was, he thought the cultural experience would be fun, but it was not the same Ryan Villapoto that was racing outdoors in 2013. And that's not an excuse, but it is, it's fact. And I, I just know the effort level was nowhere near the dedication to his training and focus and all that was not even in the same realm as what it was before then. And that's fine. I, I think Ryan could be honest and tell you that. And all you had to do was look at his face and the extra weight he was carrying in his face from 2013 and even 2014 Supercross to the 2015 MXGP series. And yeah, you could kind of tell that it was not the same guy. And on top of that, you could see Ryan struggling with some of the aspects of different tracks and different bikes. You know, the bike was much different that he had in Europe versus what he raced on in America. And that's a, that, that's an aspect that Eli would have to approach too, right? The fuel's much different and there, there are things you can and can't do with an MXGP bike that you can with an American bike. Now, having said that, do I think that Eli Tomac could beat Jeffrey Hurlings in a 12 round American series? I don't know. His chances would be much greater. That's for sure. I, I would be much more willing to bet on Eli Tomac racing the American series against Jeffrey Hurlings than I would the MXGP series. I still think Hurlings is better. And I think we saw how great Hurlings is and can be at that Ironman national. I mean, he was going around two seconds a lap faster than most of the field throughout the whole day. And I was in Cabo for a bachelor party that weekend. And I was arguing vehemently with some of my friends, Dan Truman and Paul Parabinos, they were, they were on the Jeffrey Hurlings train and I was not, and I ended up losing a hundred bucks or something when Marvin Muskan crashed the last lap because I had any, I had the whole field over Hurlings and they had Jeffrey Hurlings and then Marvin threw away the overall and I lost. So I was pretty pissed about that, but I think Jeffrey Hurlings proved his point and they proved their point that Hurlings pace and ability can be on a different level than the rest of the world. So it would be a very difficult ask for Eli Tomac to beat Hurlings, but I, th I think it's possible in America because Tomac knows all these tracks and he would have the advantage going in. He, especially early in practices and just for, for Hurlings to pick up the pace on those tracks to beat Tomac would be, it would be a lot to ask week in and week out. And I think Tomac would have his days where he was just on it and would gain confidence against Hurlings. So I hope we get that opportunity. I hope that Hurlings comes over and races in America at some point because I really don't believe Tomac's going. That that's my personal belief. I think Tomac is much more likely likely to retire before we would ever see something like that happen. So good question. It's it's great, you know, it's a great subject to battle and bench race about. I doubt we ever get the opportunity to uh to really get a hard answer though. That's, that's kind of a bummer, but it's just reality. Now, as for the final question comes from Ian and he's asking about Shane McElrath's potential landing spots for 2021. He mentioned specifically going to monster energy tether racing. 
as Steve would say, Ted Tedder, which cracks me up every time. It's actually Matt Tedder is the owner over there. And if they would bring on Shane as a landing spot because he could go back to KTM, which he was just there a year ago. And it would uh, fit the bill for a 450 program that gets him factory equipment. He could still be sponsored by Monster, which he is this year at Monster Star Yamaha. I don't personally think it happens. To me, I think they've found a really good option with Marty. Marty really performed. He stepped up and by far has done the best of any rider on that Monster Energy Tedder racing team. I don't know what the plan is. Maybe maybe Marty gets a, a really good paying ride somewhere else. Who's to say, right? I don't think that's going to be Shane's initial hope because the problem is, is I don't think that that ride over there pays much. You know, he, he maybe could go get some some money for a gear or whatever, but I don't even know about that. And I don't think that Matt Tedder is paying a big salary to any of these guys, if at all. And on top of that, that program is very expensive because they are on the factory services KTM program, just like the Rocky Mountain KTM team. And, and that equipment, those KTM motorcycles and factory equipment is very, very expensive to lease. So that kind of absorbs any money that these riders would get for salary. So while it is a good program and it does present a great opportunity for results, financially, it's not the most sought after option, let's say. Going to a factory team or going to a team that has a lot of budget to pay riders would be, I think, a much more attractive option. You know, for Marty, I don't think it was his first choice either, but he, he knew that he could get a great bike and he could get factory level equipment. So that's the option he was left with. I just don't think that's where Shane's mind is at right now. I, I could see him much more likely to try to get on Rocky Mountain KTM, even Moto Concepts Honda. Those guys, you know, Mike Genova is very generous with his budget and he pays his riders pretty well. So I could see him end up there. The only downside there is he, you don't really get a full factory bike. I think their bikes are good. We've seen how good Mookie and these guys, Justin Brayton, when he was there, how good those guys do and can do on their equipment, but it's not a full factory bike. I think there's a possibility Shane stays at Monster Star Yamaha. They, they are talking about absorbing the 450 Yamaha program or expanding it anyway. So I could see them keeping him on a Monster Star Yamaha. Now, the question is, does Shane want to ride the factory Yamaha 450? I don't know. That's been a very debated topic amongst riders is who wants to ride that bike and who doesn't. Justin Barsha seems to be struggling as of late on that bike. So we'll see if he stays or not. And we'll just see what the, the fate of that entire program looks like if Star absorbs it or if they remain a monster Yamaha separate entity. I think overall for Shane, he, two things going there. One, ensuring that he's on factory equipment because that's going to provide the best opportunity to get results. And results are paramount, especially in your rookie 450 year. If you come out and you really struggle your first 450 year, it's almost like the die is cast on you. And it, it really impedes your opportunity moving forward. Equipment is the most important factor in doing well. So look for that opportunity to be sought after first. And then secondly, he's going to want to try to make some money. 
that's why these guys race. That's what this is their livelihood. So he needs to try to set himself up to get a nice salary somewhere. But when you look at the landscape and you see the riders that are available for 2021, I can't imagine that he's going to get a ton of money to move up to the 450 class. And and I hope he does. I, I really like Shane. I think he's super talented, but I think teams are going to be opportunistic and say, hey, we have equipment, we have a spot for you, but sorry, yeah, we don't have a lot of money to pay you. And Shane's going to have to make a hard decision based on that. And maybe he can go out and get a gear deal that will you know, fill in some of that gap. But unless you are highly sought after, and I, I think that Dylan Ferrandis and Chase Sexton are those two for 2021, I think they both were paid very well or – you know, will be paid very well as they move up. And I, I have a little insight on some of that, just being involved in some of these gear negotiations and you hear, you know, kind of the, the rumor mill going of what these guys are making. Those two are, are going to be very well compensated for 2021. I just haven't heard the same buzz around any of Shane's deals. And, and that's a bummer, but he will have an opportunity. All he's got to go is do, all he's got to do is go out and prove himself and the money will come. You know, he's a little bit older, which isn't the greatest factor in all this, right? He's not 20 years old like Chase Sexton is. But if he can prove himself to be a steady top 10 or even a top five contender in 450 Supercross, the money will show up. That That's how this works. Guys will step up. And whether or not he gets it in his first year or second year or third year, the money will come. So I don't really have a great answer for a question. I don't personally see that team adding Shane, I don't think they're going to do Marty and Shane and Dakota, but we'll see. Maybe, maybe they will. I just know it's a very expensive proposition unless KTM was just willing to absorb the cost to put Shane on that team. But again, we have several months to go. We have a, well, let's see how many outdoor nationals we actually get, but we have a whole pro motocross season to go through. But as of now, I have not heard a precise landing spot for Shane. And you kind of know, like Chase is going to factory Honda. I believe that Ferrandis will end up still on the Yamaha, but I don't know that for certain. We'll see. I know KTM was after him at one point, but I feel like he's going to end up on Yamaha. But again, I don't have any proof of that, but thanks for your questions. And thanks everybody for listening this week. Don't have a lot of news. And that's why I wanted to do this listener Q and a, and please continue to send those, send them to my Instagram, send them to my email because for the next few weeks, we're not going to have a lot of breaking news. So I, I definitely want to stay engaged with you guys and please reach out to our sponsors. And as you're out there riding and beating the heat this summer, check out our sponsors, check out the companies that are involved with this and are actively engaging consumers and trying to teach you about products. So thanks again. And we will see you next week.